So Purim is coming very soon, a couple of days, and Pesach follows. Pesach is always 30 days after Purim. At the Gemara says that even in, even in a leap year, such as this year, we always connect Purim to Pesach. So the question is, what's that about, actually, connecting Purim to Pesach? So the suggestion that I made about the desire to connect Purim to Pesach has to do with an understanding, unstated understanding, but I believe an understanding, that the Megillah actually lends itself to a, from a certain viewpoint, a radical reading. One that is, I think, very shot of the Megillah, in my view, very clear, clear the pshat, but one that the rabbinic tradition does not particularly care to support. And that is that when you read the Megillah, what is clear is that the Megillah is about, first of all, a world, presents a world. This is a world that God has never mentioned, nor does God ever speak. It's a world which is run by Achashverosh, who figures in virtually every scene in the Megillah, one way or the other, and not only that, begins and ends with Achashverosh. He's the given. And whatever you think of Achashverosh, whether you think he's a fool, whether you believe he's may be a fool, but he also may not be a fool, he may be just a bad person, this is the world in which we live. This is the world of the Megillah. And in this world, not only is Achashverosh running the world, Hamelech, but it's a world which allows someone like Hamad Amalek to potentially flourish. That's the world. The culture of the Megillah, the culture of the book, and the book recalls the story of Joseph in so many ways, the culture of the book is the culture of Mitzrayim, which is a culture of taking whatever you want for yourself, which is the beginning of the book with Vashti and the other women who are assembled, kidnapped would be a better word, imprisoned in the king's harem. It's a world of which people have no memory, and which is very central to the story of Egypt, as represented by the Saramashkim. If he gets him three days after Joseph told him the good news that he'd be redeemed, he forgets him. He remembers him two years later. Why does he remember him two years later? Because it suits his own purposes to remember him, because Pharaoh is desperate to find a solution to his problem, his dreams, he can't understand them. He tells the magicians, he tells the wise men. And suddenly, the Sarah Mashkim speaks up. I suddenly remember. And Joseph is brought. The Sarah Mashkim has no interest in Joseph, but he has an interest in himself. He can help Paro. And that's what promotes Joseph to his position as the viceroy of Egypt. And Megillah is similar. Mordechai saves the life of the king. It's written down in the books. It's in chapter 2. It's written down in the record books. But those books are never read. Those are books that sit someplace, and no one ever opens them up, until chapter 6. He can't sleep. So he has to bring Sefer HaZichronot, the memory books. He brings the books of memory. He has them read before him. And lo and behold, he discovers that Mordechai, who saved his life, was not rewarded. And the king is concerned about that. Who's in the yard? Haman is there to tell the king to hang Mordechai, and we have this funny exchange between the king and Haman, totally cross-purposes, where the king says, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? And of course, Haman thinks it's himself. And I think we spoke about this, about whether Ahasuerus is a wicked king or a fool. Did we talk about that? Yes. We did talk about it at some point. Because the point is that when you read that story, when the king says that to Haman, what should be to the one the king wishes to honor? it lends itself to two possible understandings. One is that it's actually an innocent question. Haman happens to be there, who knows what time, five in the morning, happens to be there. The king has a question. The king consults his advisors. Haman is a very high-level advisor. 
So he asked him the question, an innocent question. Tell me, what do you think should be? How can we honor somebody? What's a really good honor? That's one way to read it. The other way to read it, of course, is if you assume that he's not a fool at all, that he's a clever man, it's not necessarily an innocent question. In other words, the text tells us that Haman thinks it's himself. But does the king know that Haman thinks it's himself? If the king knows that Haman thinks it's himself, then he's asking you a different question. What do you want for yourself? And when Haman gives the answer to be paraded around the city wearing the king's clothing and on the king's horse and with the crown of the king, no less, then that's the end of Haman because the king has no interest in someone else wearing the king's clothing, someone who's potentially the king, that is to say, or thinks he can be the king. But in coming back to our point about the memory, the king remembers when it suits the king. Yes? Why is Haman so stupid to, as to say that? Because Haman, well, why is he stupid? Because he is... He actually thinks of himself as the king. That's the point of the, that's the cleverness of the story. What Esther has done is, yeah, he doesn't necessarily see it as, he sees himself, but, but that, he misspoke, no doubt. But he actually sees himself. See, that's what Esther's invitation has done. What Esther's invitation has done, if one reads it that way, it's one way to read the Megillah, is take an egomaniac. Why does Haman believe, actually, that Mordechai not bowing down to him is a personal affront to Haman. It's clear in the Megillah has nothing to do with Haman. It's clear from what the people say to Mordechai. Why do you violate the king's command? The king wants people to bow down to Haman, not because the king loves Haman. I don't think the king loves anybody. Maybe he loves Esther. Who knows? The king promotes Haman, presumably, the best understanding of it, is that the promotion of Haman, and that everybody in the gate bow down to Haman. Only the gate, by the way. Nobody else has to bow down. The reason you bow down to Haman is very simple. The story immediately preceding it is the attempt by the two keepers of the gate, the watchers of the threshold, Shomri Asaf, to assassinate the king. So the king is concerned that the people inside the gate may try to kill him. The king is not concerned about people outside the gate. It doesn't bother him what they do. But the people closer to the king inside the gate, which is the liminal point of the Megillah, they're dangerous. So therefore, he appoints Haman as a loyalty oath. To honor the king, you bow down to the king's puppet, which is Haman. That's clear. And that's, I mentioned many times that Mordechai, if he doesn't end up at the gate, doesn't have to bow down. We don't know how he ends up in the gate, but Megillah certainly suggests that his ending up in the gate is a function of his cousin being the queen, because they only find him in the gate after she's the queen. Before she's the queen, he lives in Shushan Abira. It sounds like he put himself in the gate. And when you put yourself in the gate, you are obligated to abide by the king's rules. And one of the rules happens to be to bow down to Haman, which Mordechai refuses to do. That's Mordechai's red line. Presumably for one of two reasons. Either because the bowing there is not just respect. It's korimu mishtachavim. It has the form of worship. Korimu mishtachavim Haman, Or, and, because the particular person that the king commands everybody to bow down to happens to be Haman, who is Agagi. He's a Malik. And that's Mordechai's red line. He's not bowing down to Amalek because he's a Jew. And bowing down to Amalek is a disrespecting God. You can bow down to anybody else in the Bible. It's not a problem. In any event, so being in the gate is what causes the problem. If he's not in the gate, he doesn't have to bow down. But getting back to my point, the culture of this place is Mitzrayim. And not only is it Mitzrayim, the setting, the way the place is set up, Ahasuerus' palaces, his structures are reminiscent of what the Torah says about the Beis HaMikdosh and about the Mishkan. And not only are they reminiscent in terms of the structure, by the way, they are reminiscent in terms of the rules. 
Because in chapter 4, it becomes very clear that there are two rules that relate to the palace of Achashverosh. One rule is, in the beginning of chapter 4, that if you're in mourning, you can't be there. That's one rule. You can't enter the gate of the king if you're in mourning. That's number one. And number two, the second rule, which is very central to the story, is you can't enter the inner sanctum without permission. And if you enter the inner sanctum without permission, you're put to death. Now those two rules, A, you can't enter the place of the king, or the chambers of the king, if you're in mourning, and B, you can't enter the inner sanctum without explicit permission, are exactly the two rules that the Chumash spells out in the book of Ayikra, which revolve around Nadav and Avihu. The first is, after the death of Nadav and Avihu, Moshe instructs Aaron, he can't mourn, because you carry on, the show must go on, you can't mourn, and B, Later in chapter 16, Achare Mot Shnei B'nei Aaron, Torah has a second rule. You can't enter the holy place without permission. That is to say, the permission there is granted through the sacrificial service. So those two rules about the temple, which are central to the book of Vayikra, are exactly the two rules that the Megillah has in conjunction with Achashverosh. Yes? Yeah, are you sure you've not got it backwards there? I'm quite sure I don't, yeah. Yeah. No, I'm sure I don't have it backwards. You mean you're saying you're suggesting that perhaps the temple is based upon the king? Of course. That is possible, but it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant to my point. That is certainly a possibility. I've suggested it myself many times. But the fact is, it doesn't matter for our purposes. The point is, there's a congruity, there's a parallel between the two. That the Megillah is representing, my point is that when you think about the culture of the Megillah, the Megillah is a mythical representation of the world. I don't mean it's not true by myth. I mean it's a representation. As I said last week, they're all true, all the myths. The different ways of seeing reality. The way the Megillah sees reality is that the world is run by a bad guy, that God can't be found, so he not clearly be found, and that this bad guy has set himself up as a kind of God. His palaces, etc., are reminiscent of God's temples. And the culture of this place is actually Mitzrayim. It's a culture of no memory. It's a culture of what have you done for me lately, and it's a culture where the powerful take whatever they want. Now, those two places, that is to say, the idea that the human being can be God, and that the world, the culture, is a culture of Egypt, that actually is very interesting because the Chumash, the way the Chumash is set up after the expulsion from Gan Eden, the Chumash is describing the alternative to Gan Eden in which God and the human can interact, which turns out to be the land of Canaan. And secondly, within the land of Canaan, the sacred space. The person who discovers those two spaces is Avraham. Avraham in two lechuchas. The first lechucha is to go to the land that I will show you, and the second one is to go to the land, the place that I will tell you. The first is the land of Canaan, where God appears to Avraham and speaks to Avraham. And the second is the Haramoriah, which becomes later the place of the temple, the Mikdash, etc., and the Chumash is the Mishkan. That's the alternative. That's the place that we can interact with God. But just before that, actually, and just after that, because the command to go to Canaan is chapter 12, and at the end, the previous narrative in chapter 11 is about the world coming together and building a city, and the city has a tower, and the tower ascends to the heavens. That's a place called Bavel. And God disperses everybody from Babel. Babel is a place where not just the city, where everybody gathers in one place, which is problematic, 
where the people of the world think they can build a tower to heaven. The word shame, by the way, often is used in the Bible to refer to the temple, often. And is the way the Torah describes the Beis Amigdash. Then you have the Abraham story where he goes to the land, but immediately after he goes to the land, he goes down to Egypt. He descends to Mitzrayim. So it turns out that the Canaan command of chapter 12 is enveloped by two stories. The first is Babel, and the second is Mitzrayim. And what the Megillah, I think, is about is the following suggestion. The Megillah is suggesting, in effect, the following. We know that the sacred alternative to Gan Eden is the land of Canaan. And we also know Abraham's instruction to go to the land of Canaan follows Migdal Babel, those nine verses, and the world is dispersed, actually. The world is dispersed because God doesn't want people to be in one place. Says the Megillah, what about... The Megillah has a very simple point. What if, in fact, we never left Babel? We're still in Babel. How can we be in Babel? Everybody speaks a different language. So the Megillah says, okay, it could be 127 languages. Make 128, because the Jews also have their own language, even though they have no state. The Chayudim Kilshonam, right? 120, 128 languages, but there's still one king. That's the point of the Megillah. Many languages. But the world is one, in the sense that there's one guy running the world. Many languages. Doesn't seem to matter. You send out the missives in different languages. The world can still be one, even though you have many languages, means you're still in Babel. What about if you're still in Babel? And the Megillah says further, and let me tell you something, the culture of Babel and the culture of Mitzrayim actually are very similar. Because what Babel says is, I am God. And what Mitzrayim says, I'll take whatever I want. And those are not identical, but they're certainly connected. Because one certainly, you can certainly see where one might lead to the other. That someone who feels, I am God, can take whatever he or she pleases to take. So that's the Megillah. That's the world of the Megillah. The world of the Megillah is, what about if you're living in Egypt? And what about if you're staying in Egypt, which is Babel? You're never going to get to the land, and you're never going to leave Mitzrayim. So, if, one second, if that were the case, if that were the case, then the Megillah, of course, raises the question, how does one function in such a world? How does one function in a world which is run by Ahasuerus? It's run by a bad person, terrible values. You're in Babel, you're in Mitzrayim. Can you be a good human being? Can you be a Jew? That's the question the Megillah is posing, okay? The Megillah does not suggest in any manner, shape, or form, never, that you're going to return to the land. It's not like other books of the Bible, like Daniel or Ezra, Nehemiah. It suggests nothing of the sort. It begins with Ahasuerus, it ends with Ahasuerus. It suggests nothing about any other temple, and nothing about a sacred land, nothing. It's a description of a world. My book said it's called Imriyet Kazot, for such a time as this, which of course is a clever play on the verse, because I believe time is this, is also our time. It's the world in which we live, as I see it. Run by pretty much bad people for the most part. Look at the last hundred years of human history. And the question is, how do you function as a moral person in such a world? That's my take on the Megillah. Now, if that be the case, now, of course, the Megillah claims that you can function in such a world. The way you function in such a world, by the way, in the Megillah, is not by synthesizing the values of the larger culture. That's not the way the Megillah functions. The larger culture has nothing to offer in the Megillah, period. It's a different way. You have to survive with the larger culture. You have to be able to deal with that You have to understand him. 
but you can't actually inculcate his values because he has no values as far as the Megillah is concerned. You have your own set of values. And your own set of values revolve around things like memory. And the day of Purim, these days are remembered and performed. Nisqarim v'nasim. Not just the days of Purim are remembered and performed in chapter 9, but the month. The month, the month of Adar is the month that you remember. And within the month of Adar, there are two days you remember. The 14th and the 15th are within that month. That's what you have to remember. And not just remember, there's another thing you have to do, which is you have to give gifts to the poor. And the point of giving gifts to the poor, which was Mordechai's Chidush, because the Jews of Persia, in chapter 9 of the Megillah, when they rest from their victory, they made it, in the words of the Megillah, Yimei Mishta Besimcha, days of joy and drinking, which of course is precisely the way the Persians celebrate all their holidays. That's how the book begins. It's Mishta Besimcha. So the point is, the Jewish response to the victories was Persian. And Mordechai steps in with Esther, and Mordechai says, and Esther, three things. First of all, it's not just Mishnah V'Simcha. You can drink all you want, but remember, Matanus Levionim. That's number one. That's synthesis. What? That's synthesis. It's synthesis of a type. I would say that there's different kinds of synthesis. I don't think it's synthesis necessarily. Okay, you want to put that happy spin on it, all right. But I don't think actually that it's synthesis as much as in Gozer and Gezer al-Atzibor, I don't think there's any positive to it. But I do agree that Mordechai doesn't undo it. I think because he can't, actually. He's smart enough to know he can't undo the drinking. And the truth is that Purim, to this day, retains that side of it. The drinking on Purim, the getting drunk in many circles, which I find to be extremely problematic, is not coming from a Jewish place. There's no way. The Chumash, in a million years, would never suggest such a thing. Happiness in drinking, yeah. Getting drunk, no. So, that's number one. Number two, apart from the Betanus Revionim, it's also memory. And number three, the specific memory is accomplished in the book by Vinichtar Basefer. The idea of writing a book, Zikaron Basefer, which of course is what the Chumash talks about Amalek. Ketobzot Zikaron Basefer. And that triad appears twice in the Megillah. They're saying something else. They're saying it could happen again. They're saying we have to remember good and evil. We have to remember the evil and our obligation to try to blot it out. We were successful against Haman. Well, we know Amalek's in every generation. So therefore, that's what Mordechai and Esther have sent around to the Jews. Now, the point is, what's one of the unique features of the Megillah is that you actually have people instructing the community, the Jewish people, how to observe something. They create a new holiday in the month of Adar, a holiday that involves memory and the month that involves memory. Now here is where I think the rabbinic tradition steps in because they were alarmed about something, because they understood something about the Megillah. The Megillah doesn't know from the first month of the year. The month of Nisan in the Megillah is simply the month that Haman cast the poor. It may or may not be the case that Esther is fasting and the Jews are fasting three days on the 14th, 15th, and 16th of Nisan, which happens to be Pesach. But the point is, not so much that the Jews are not observing Pesach. That's not really the issue in the Megillah. The real issue that perhaps bothered the tradition is forget about not observing Pesach. There's no sense in the Megillah at all that there is Pesach. Pesach doesn't exist. The month, in the Chumash, the month you remember, Shamar et Chodesh Aviv, Yosita Pesach Hashem Elohecha. Shamar means to remember. 
And Zechel Yitziat Mitzrayim is the key memory that we have as Jews. We are remembering the Exodus all the time, in a million ways, through the observance of the festivals, through certain social behaviors that we have, the way we treat other people, the gear, remember the stranger, you were strangers in the land of Egypt, oh, it's central to the Chumash. The main memory we have is Pesach, Yitziat Mitzrayim, and the month, Shachodesh Aviv. The Megillah doesn't know from this at all, quite the opposite. The Megillah has a new month you remember. The month you remember is not the first month, it's the last month. And not only that, it has a very precise parallel. Because you remember the month, but it picks two days out of the month, which are the 14th and the 15th, which clearly in the Chumash are the two critical days for Pesach, because the 14th is the Pesach, and the 15th inaugurates Chag Matzot. So therefore, one could read the Megillah as Mordechai and Esther are not simply legislating new laws, but they're legislating a set of laws which are different from the Chumash's set of laws. And, I would add, it makes perfect sense. That's what bothers them. It makes perfect sense because if you believe the world in which you live is not a world in which you actually leave Egypt, you're in Egypt, nor is it a world that you're going to come to the Holy Land because you're going to stay here for an indeterminate amount of time, then it would make perfect sense to say the following. The laws of the Chumash, the Ramban already cited this point, the laws of the Chumash are clear. When you come into the land, you do X. The Chumash says that over and over again. Moshe said it explicitly in the book of Devarim, that when I stood at Mount Sinai, God gave me many laws. I told you many of them, but many of them I haven't told you yet, because they're relevant to when we enter the land, and very soon you're going to enter the land. I'm about to die, enter the land. So these are the rules for entering the land. And the other big piece of it in the Chumash is Yitziat Mitzrayim, the memory of Mitzrayim. But what about in theory, if you never leave Mitzrayim, nor do you enter the land? Then, presumably, you'd have a different Torah. And that's exactly what the rabbinic tradition doesn't like, and in so many ways. And I'll give you two examples how they demonstrate they don't like it. First of all, we have the Agadic statement, not in the Mishnah, it's the famous Agadic statement about Purim. Purim is the day, says the Agada, where the Jews accepted the Torah. That at Mount Sinai, God said, take the Torah or else. So we didn't have much choice. But at Purim, which is the time of God's presumed absence, hest upon him, that's when the Jews, Kimu v'kiblu, Kimu mashikiblu kvada. That Agada is making a very clear statement. There's one Torah. But the one Torah that we were given at Sinai, we didn't fully accept it yet. So Purim is a time of Matan Torah, Kabbalah Torah. But which Torah? Not a new Torah, God forbid. It's the old Torah. That's number one. And number two, what you have in the Mishnah, instead of Mishnayot and Masechah Megillah, which are very interesting, is the attempt, among other things, to connect Purim to the Jewish mainstream. The mainstream means Pesach, basically. Pesach is our main holiday. We'll start that this morning. Pesach is our main holiday, or certainly one of the main holidays, obviously. And not just is it adjoining Purim to Pesach, not only does the tradition say, make sure you put Purim before Pesach, connect it to Pesach, not only that, but the very way in which Purim gets constructed by the Mishnah is very interesting. The Mishnah, Mesechet Megillah, basically. The key mitzvah for Purim for Mesechet Megillah is Kriyata Megillah. And what's very striking is, and amazing, actually, that unlike in the Talmud, which talks in several different places about the practice we have of Kriyata Torah, which it describes to Ezra and Moshe, Moshe sets up the Torah reading. Ezra continues the practice of reading the Torah. That's found in Babakama. It's found in other places in the Gemara. When you read the Mishnayot of the Mishnah, it's clear the laws of reading the Torah are all in one place. 
which is in Megillah. Mesechet Megillah is where you have all the laws of Kriyat Torah, as if to say that the practice of reading the Torah is connected to the Megillah. The Megillah is an example of reading Tanakh. It's not Torah. In other words, when we read the Torah, public reading of the Torah. So what do we read? So we read two, we have Tanakh, Torah and Devim Ketuvim. Our public readings are only from the Torah, and the half Torah is always from Nevi'im. There isn't half Torah from the Ketuvim. So we read Nevi'im and we read Torah. We don't read Ketuvim, actually. Maybe at one point in time, there was, probably was a practice at one point in time on Shabbos afternoon to read Ketuvim. But that practice has been lost, if it ever existed. But we do read Ketuvim because the Megillahs are Ketuvim. And the Megillah is Megillah Esther. So my point is that the Mishnah, what the Mishnah attempts to do is to take Purim and to say, fundamentally, Purim is a mainstream holiday. Because how do you observe Purim in the Mishnah? In the observe Purim in the Mishnah, in the Talmud, someone says, what is Purim? Says, Rabbi Salavechik, what is Purim? Purim is a kim of Kriya Samagilah. Sudas Purim. Sudas Purim is connected to Mishloach Manot, because you have to send gifts, and that's probably food to people. They can have a Suda. So we have a Kriyas HaMegillah, we have a Suda, and we have Tzedakah, Matanos Levionim. Basically, that's a Jewish holiday. That's what the Torah speaks of, a Jewish holiday. And that's the rabbinic conception of Purim to this very day. However, there is another conception of Purim, which is not the rabbinic conception of Purim, which is the people's conception of Purim, which is not just different from the rabbinic conception of Purim, but it makes every attempt to undercut it and that is the folk Purim over hundreds of years. And the folk observance of Purim is very different. It's not about reading the Megillah. Actually, it's the opposite. It's making so much noise you can't hear the Megillah, which is an ancient practice, not just Haman, by the way. Already in the Shulchan Aruch, they're disturbed by the noise. How can you be outside the Megillah with all the noise? The meal is eaten, of course, usually, often, at the last second of the day. It's actually not eaten on Purim. But apart from that, things like masks, Things like men dressing as women and women dressing as men. Things like making a mockery of the Torah, which they call Purim Torah. Good Purim Torah is very funny. Sounds exactly, looks exactly like the Torah. Mesechet Purim, which was one of the best examples. If you ever saw Mesechet Purim, it looks like a Gemara. There's a Mishnah, there's a Gemara, there's Rashi on one side, Tosfos on the other. All the argumentation is the Gemara's argumentation. But the effect, net result of it is absurdity. The first Mishnah based on the four halakim of the Shulchan Aruch. So the first Mishnah is the first Mishnah. But if a piece of Haman fell into a pot, does that invalidate the pot or not? And there's a whole discussion in Rashi and Tosfus. The Tosfus sounds exactly like Tosfus. There's all the idioms of Tosfus. Oh, it's brilliant, of course, but it's absurd. And what it's suggesting is something very important. By the way, what got me very interested in this topic is the Shulchan Aruch, the Ramah, quotes a custom which is discussed very widely. The custom to wear shatnas on Purim. I'm not making this up. Shatnas is the illegal mixing of linen and wool. It's a doraisa. So there is a practice that people wear shatnas on Purim. So that struck me. First of all, how can they wear shatnas? So all the commentaries say, shatnas drabanon, it's not doraisa, whatever. But what's that about, actually? What would this be about of wearing, not just something that's forbidden to wear, but particularly shatnas, the mixing and the point is, that got me to think about all these practices. Appointing a non-knowledgeable person to be the chief of the academy for the day, or the Rosh Hashiva, etc., etc., etc. All of these things, what they're about fundamentally, or even in the Gemara, drinking till you don't know the difference between Haman and Mordechai. 
So all of these practices point us in two directions. First of all, they point us into the blurring of these distinctions. In other words, what they're suggesting, I'm not saying this is conscious, by the way, that this is the collective subconscious, but it's over generations, over hundreds of years. What it's saying, in effect, is this. Under the guise of being a little drunk, you're drinking a lot, so like the court fool can say many things, a fool, so we, you know, if he's drunk, he doesn't mean it, right? What it suggests, all of these practices, is very simply, we believe that the world has an order. That's our, probably every religion does. I would say the word for order, which is a good segue, is the word Seder. The world has a Seder. The world has an order. There's a plan. There's the God who interacts throughout history. There's a beginning. There's an end. There's a hope for positive ending, an eschatological positive ending. And we believe that it's an ordered world. We make distinctions in this world. We make gender distinctions. We make moral distinctions. They're the good guys and the bad guys. Okay? Basically, that's how we order our world. And the practices, without saying a word, suggest something quite different, which is that the order that we see in the world is an imposed order. The world at its core is chaos. We are imposing order upon the world. I often wonder about my own teaching Torah. You know what I mean? Is it really there? Or is it something I'm imposing from without? I like to believe it's there. But who knows? I mean, I'm saying that it's it's very beautiful, actually. But is it actually true, is the question. So that's the question. And one day a year, at least, we allow ourselves to think, or maybe it's not true. And I would add that this seeing of the world as a place of randomness, as a place where God can't be found, and a world that's run by people who actually don't care, not even bad people necessarily, but there's a sense of randomness, is certainly a way to read Megillah Esther. One can read the Megillah that way. In fact, I said many times, if you were walking in the street and found this little pamphlet in the street, had no knowledge of any biblical text whatsoever, just read the story, nobody would ever think that God is involved in the story. It sounds like a palace intrigue, very funny, very clever woman who figures out how to manipulate the king. And that's it. And that is a way to read the book, by the way. And that basically is related to a way to see the world. There is a way to see, we don't verbalize it. And the people who do these things don't even have a clue what they're doing. But when you look at the set of things, all of these different practices, all of them, they point in two directions. One is that the world is a place of randomness, that there is no Seder, and that the Seder is imposed from without. And I would say something else, actually, that it suggests, although not explicitly. But what it suggests is something else. The Megillah is about Achashverosh. I mean, it's not about Achashverosh. It's the setting for the story. It's about Mordechai and Esther. But the world is the world of Achashverosh. Interesting is, in the Megillah, a word that appears 20 times, 20 times, is a little two-letter word, dot, which means law. And law is very central in the Megillah. In fact, Esther said to Mordechai in chapter 4, how can I go to the king? It's against the law. Can't break the law. And then she says, I'll break the law. Shaloka dot. But there are all kinds of laws. There are millions of laws. But all the laws, actually... In chapter 1, there's laws. In chapter 2, there's laws about the, about the women who come to the king, about their cosmetic treatments. They're brought in for 12 months to prepare themselves for the one night for the king. It's a dot, it's a rule. Six months in Shem and Amar. There's a law. There's a law they send out in chapter 1. Man is king of the castle. There's a law in chapter 3. Kill all the Jews. There's a law in chapter 8. There's going to be a war, but I support the Jews. 
There are all kinds of laws in the book, okay? Point is, but all the laws point to one thing, all of the laws. They're all about one person. There are all kinds of laws, but basically there's only one law. What will please the king, or what the people believe will please the king? That's Achashverosh, that's his laws. The Megillah, I think, people, under the guise of being drunk, are implicitly raising another question. That's true of Achashverosh. What about our laws, actually? What are they about? What about our teachers? What about our rebbies? Is it about us, or is it about them? It is a question, I will say, I confess. I ask that question all the time. Every time I open up a newspaper and read something else about the so-called laws, are they a way to control people, or are they actually a way to get to a deep truth? So, I like to believe that at least some of our leaders, past and present, really, Hashem Shemayim, really believe, and Munis Chachamim, you know? But every so often, you read something and you have to question, I do at least, is that where it's coming from? Or is it coming from some, consciously or unconsciously, coming from some other place? So that's the second thing, because the practices of Purim are not just practices that express or reflect chaos. They are practices that actually undo the halacha. No, making noise during the Megillah, right, is not just about a practice. It's about destroying the mitzvah. Because if you make noise during the Megillah, you can't be yotze the mitzvah. Eating the meal of Purim at the last split second of the day basically undoes the mitzvah. Eating the meal of Purim once Purim is over. Giving tzedakah to anybody who asks you, rich or poor or whatever, call a poshet yad, essentially is contradictory to the idea of supporting those in need. Support anybody, anybody who comes, call a poshet yad. It can be understood otherwise, but my point is, it certainly lends itself to that possibility, and it's certainly true, that in the Megillah, the dot of the Megillah, the law, sometimes I wonder, the more laws, the less law. I remember sitting in Israel once where there are million laws. There's so many rules. Try to open a bank account there. It's got 10 million rules. And I'm sitting there in a restaurant with a big sign, no smoking. And underneath the sign is this guy puffing away like crazy. No one says a word. The law's up there, you see. But down here, we don't have law. So that's the million laws. So you've got to wonder about all the rules and the laws, etc. Is there actually law? Is there actually justice or not? My point is that to interpret the Megillah this way, you won't find a commentary. You won't find the Ramban saying that the Megillah is a set of random behaviors. But you will find commentaries who say it all the time, namely the Jewish people, who consciously or unconsciously, it's exactly what they're saying, that this is a book in which things happen. Yes, and that's very frightening. Because the point is, if you believe that, if you believe that, the, I'll make a simple point, and then we'll move on. I could talk, I could talk about this forever, by the way. Let's take a very simple thing. The Megillah has Haman, call him Amalek, out to kill all the Jews. Out to kill all the Jews. Because they are, first of all, it's a good opportunity. They're scattered in, throughout the land. Amalek likes the weak. Pick on the weak. And he's an egomaniac, whatever it is. So now the question is, so all the Jews are going to be killed. And let's not forget, they almost are killed. It's only through Esther's intercession, and even after she intercedes with the king, even after Haman is killed, by the way, the king has no desire, and he's not thinking about revoking the decree. When Esther begs the king to revoke the decree, the wicked Haman's wicked decree, the king's initial answer is, I can't do it because I can... Listen, I've done so much for you, he says. I've given you the house of Haman. I made... Right? Because Now, I tell you what, you do whatever you want. I can't revoke that decree. So the king, if he's not requested by Esther, has no intention of revoking the decree. All the Jews will be killed. Haman's dead. He has no interest. He's not even an anti-Semite, by the way. Well, 
Why bother? That's all. He doesn't care. Who cares? So that's how close we came. When Esther appeals to the king, by the way, she doesn't appeal to the king with any kind of moral claim. Yeah, she says, wicked Haman did it. She says something very different to the king in chapter 8, which is very important, because she understands the king. She says to the king, I'll put it in our terms, if you kill my people, I'll be a very unhappy playmate. That's exactly what she says to him. That works, actually. You know what it reminds me of? I'll tell you what it reminds me of. It reminds me what Moshe Rabbeinu says to God after the ego. Moshe says to God, not that such a wonderful people. He doesn't say that. He says, God, these are my people. God says, I'll send my angel with them. I'm not going with them. Forget it. I'm not going with them. Says Moshe, are you going with me? Oh, with you? Of course. Of course I'm going with you. Of course I'll go with you. Says Moshe, I'm glad you're going with us. So Moshe says. So that's what he says. That is to say, I go with them. You want to come with me? Then you come with us. Says God, I'll do this also. Read the psukin. That's exactly what it says. Because I like you. It's exactly the Megillah. Achashverosh likes Esther. Like Esther, want me to be happy. These are my people. Okay. Then you write whatever you want. He doesn't do it himself because he never takes responsibility. You write whatever you want. So the point is, we came very close. Now the question is, why do the Jews deserve to come so close to utter extinction? What did they do wrong? So Chazal searched for things. Searching. That party in the beginning of the book, they went to the party of Achashverosh. Maybe it says Mordechai didn't bow down to Haman inside the gate, would suggest maybe other Jews did bow down. It's not clear there are other Jews in the gate, by the way. I would call this grasping for straws, because what Chazal will not abide, they can't accept the possibility, that all the Jews will be killed for no reason. There's no reason. What did they do wrong? Nothing. Did nothing wrong. That's Amalek. Amalek isn't even about the Jews necessarily. There are two Amaleks, I can't get into that now. But the point is, there is another possibility in the Megillah. They did nothing wrong. But Haman, who's angry because of his own particular sickness, decides to take it out not just against Mordechai the Jew, but against all the Jews who are simply victims of this egomaniac. And that's another way to read it. Certainly when you read the Megillah, there is no sense whatsoever in the Megillah as far as I can tell. I never believed in the Megillah that the Jews are guilty. The Jews are assimilated, that's true, for sure. But the idea they've done some kind of crime which merits this terrible punishment is certainly not a very plausible reading of the Megillah, and certainly the other reading is a better one. So that's the randomness. You get caught someplace, it's not your fault. Yes, my friend. Just putting a point that you make with constancy, together with what you just said, we see no indication in the Megillah that the Jews are keeping the Torah whatsoever. We don't, that's right. So they're subject to randomness. That's wrong. That's a way to read it. We also see no evidence in the Megillah that Queen Esther observes the Torah in any sense, prior to the sending out of the message. I argue that Mordechai and Esther do observe the Torah, but it's a different Torah. I think there's a different Torah in the Megillah, one that the rabbinic tradition overall is not crazy about. And I would say that, one second, Avra, I'll take a second. And I would say that in the Megillah, I would just say at one point about the Megillah, I spoke at Shabbos somewhere, I mentioned this particular point about Mordechai and Esther. Mordechai, actually, I would call him the steadfast Jew. The term that the Megillah uses for Mordechai more than one time is the expression, uvechol yom v'yom. Mordechai is a Jew who is a v'chol yom v'yom. Every day it says Mordechai would go and check up on Esther. 
He's somebody who doesn't do a mitzvah once a month. You know what I mean? He's every moment, every day. And the same thing is true of Haman. And he refuses to bow down. And the people in the court, Haman doesn't realize he's not bowing down. Haman has no idea. Mordechai doesn't go in front of him, I'm not bowing down. Haman has no clue he's not bowing down. Mordechai just avoids him. He doesn't start trouble, he avoids him. The problem is the people in the court. They tell Haman. And they go to Mordechai, by Every single day, they go to him, and they say, why do you violate the king's command? And every single day, he doesn't bow down. So Mordechai is a Jew, and he makes it clear. He doesn't hide the fact he's a Jew. The Megillah has the other hero, Esther. She's different. She obviously observes zero. After five years, no one knows she's a Jew. How's that even possible, right? No one knows she's a Jew. But she has a different place in this world. She doesn't have the mitzvahs every day. They're irrelevant to her. Who knows what she does? She has one mitzvah. Or what her, her mission in this world, her shlichus in this world. And the Megillah presents that to us. That's what Mordechai says. This is why you were chosen. This is your mission in life. Forget the other stuff. It's not like Daniel doesn't eat non-kosher food. But this is your mission. And this is a different thing. So you fall or rise as to whether you do this particular, very difficult, life-threatening mission, which she accepts. She's the great heroine. So they're both the heroes. They're two heroes, and they're very different people. But my point is that this is the world of the Megillah. Now, if this is the world in which you live, then I presume, I believe, that the Torah is a different Torah. I don't buy this Torah from heaven business. I don't believe in this ideal Torah up there in heaven. I don't believe it. I once did believe it. My two rabbis, Rabbi Salvechi and Rabbi Lichtenstein, and that's what they espoused. And I don't believe that. I left it a long time ago. I don't believe that's what the Torah is. Personally, I'm not telling you what you don't want to believe, whatever you want. I believe the Torah is the way to act out the moral values. It can't be a contradiction between what's right and what the halacha is. That's impossible. Because the halacha is the way you act out what's right. So that idea of a, this bifurcation, this is right, but that's the halacha, that's an expression that I abandoned a long time ago. Well, it's very prevalent. I think it's very problematic. That's the Megillah. The Torah of Mordechai and Esther, if you're still in Mitzrayim, you never left Egypt. So you can't have a mitzvah, because you're in Mitzrayim. And you can't have a mitzvah when you come into the land, because you're not coming into the land. This is the world. This is the mythical world. Canadian is also a mythical world. They're all mythical worlds. They're all a set of myths. In the sense of, they're descriptions of the world. And the Megillah is such a description. The rabbinic tradition was very nervous about that approach. And the rabbinic tradition makes attempts, I mentioned several, to bring Megillah in, to bring Purim in line with these, the normative Jewish holidays, the prime one being Pesach, the Seder. But the Jewish people unconsciously have resisted it. The Jewish people resist it through our practices. Not that the average person will tell you, I'm doing this because of... I'm drinking not to know between Mordechai and Haman because I believe the world is chaotic and order is imposed from without. No, they're not going to say that. They never thought of that. But when you look at the range of different practices over time, 10, 12, 15, the wearing of shotness, got me thinking about this. That's the direction in which they point. Yes, Avril, what do you want to say? Well, I'm just so stuck on this beginning of the story that the reason why we are seen as a threat, as a negative at all, to everyone is because our laws are different than their laws. And it's sort of a setup for what you've been talking about because we as Jews read this text, we, we know what that sentence means, that our laws are different. Let me just interrupt for one second. Yeah. By the way, that would suggest the Jews are observing something, actually. Yes. 
at least from the standpoint of Haman. Now, the fact of the matter is, I wouldn't make a case based on what Haman says. In other words, the Nazi definition of Jew was anybody who knows what, you know what I mean? But the point is, I wouldn't like to say that we define Jewishness to what Amalek sees. But the verse does suggest, certainly, that the Gemara is very funny, you know, very, very funny things about, you know, shop, you know, it's, uh, I remember my brother used to work for a big law firm in New York for two, three years. Worked for a guy who actually loved him. Funny story. My brother left after three years, went to Israel. The guy whom he worked for, a Jew, who had gotten to the papers for other reasons, for positive reasons, he said, don't leave, Joel. We'll make you a partner. I said, Joel, if I'm a partner, I'll never leave. I'm leaving. The guy called up my mother. <laughs> my, my brother's 30 years old at the time. Called my mother. Speak to your son. He shouldn't leave. So this guy, we prayed you loved him. Friday, 12 o'clock. Joel, it's time to leave for Shabbos, isn't it? He was a non-observant Jew. He always, 12 o'clock, isn't, isn't Shabbos coming soon? When does Shabbos start? 1.30? When does Shabbos, you know, that kind of thing. So the Gemara talks about Haman. These Jews have their holidays. They never work. They're always taking off early. That kind of, that's Haman, basically. You know? <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Well, you know, I'm just thinking about what you've been talking about because I think we assume when we read the book that we know what our differences are, right? Oh, we're people that have different rules. That's why we bother them so much. But the truth is the Megillah gives no indication whatsoever about what our differences may be. Oh, it does. It does at the end. At the end. At the end. Mordechai and Esther teachers. Those are our rebbies, Mordechai and Esther. It's almost like a literary, you know, it's set up in the beginning, and the question is always there. How are we different than the rest of these people? You're always looking for clues. What are we doing that indicates, other than Hamad, than Mordechai not bowing down, if that's informed by... And Esther going to the king. Right. Those are both breaking the laws. The breaking of the law in the Megillah, that's another piece of it. The breaking of the law is what gets you almost killed, but you can't survive without breaking the law. That's the point of the Megillah. Because you live in a world, you can't, you can't buy into this world. You do have to make your peace with the world in the Megillah. You can't contradict Ahasuerosh. Only one person in the Megillah stands up to Ahasuerosh. Vashti. is the only one. Vatma'ain. The Megillah makes the point that if you want to accomplish something, you can't openly contradict the king. And it makes that point in the most interesting way and then I'll take one or two more comments, then we'll start to move towards Pesach. I could talk about the Megillah forever, by the way. It's a book that I actually feel. There's certain books you study, some books you feel it. It's a book that I feel. There's certain books, I feel gracious. I feel Shmuel. I feel it. You know what I mean? One of my kids is very musically, incredibly talented. Didn't really study anything. I took him once to a boy, the boy feels the music. Feels it. Sometimes, that's the trick, to feel it. It doesn't always work, but sometimes. It's a book I feel, actually. Yes. Breaking the law. Breaking the law. Yeah. It's like this. The point of the book, the book recalls the Joseph story in many places. Many, 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 many places recalls the Joseph story, but it recalls it in highly significant ways in a few places. And one of the places is, one of the key stories, obviously, is when Mordechai refuses to bow down to Haman. He won't bow down to Haman. That's his red line. Stop bowing down to Haman. And they, people in the court every single day go to him and say, why don't you bow down? Why do you violate the king's command? He refuses to listen. Then they tell Haman to see if his words would stand. He had told them he's a Jew. That's what it says. It's not clear what he had told them he's a Jew means. Does it mean he told them he's a Jew and therefore he can't bow down? Or does it mean he told them he's a Jew and that's not why they went to Haman? Because they're bothered. So why is the Jew not bowing down? Why is the Jew getting away with it? There's an anti-Semitism in the court. That's two possibilities. In any event, it recalls another story, 
of someone else who has a red line, and the language is the same. Though she spoke to him every day, he refused to listen. That's the story of Joseph in Potiphar's house and Mrs. Potiphar. Those are the two stories. The language is parallel, and the stories are parallel. Parallel to a great degree, because in each of those two cases, you have a person who's represented as being very ambitious. Joseph is not a kind of retiring, shy person, who kind of modest person who feels, I can't do anything. He's the guy who dreams that the sun, moon, and the stars bow down to him. Look at the brothers. The sun, the moon, and the stars, okay? So, only God can interpret dreams. Tell me your dreams. Uh That's Joseph, right? The point is, he's a very ambitious and extremely talented person. But he has his red line. There's a line he's not going to cross, even though he's simulating it to Mitzrayim. And the Egyptians see and they take. And Joseph can't do it. And he explains why he can't do it. But before he explains why he can't do it, there's one word in the Chumash. Vayimma'ein. Actually, has a shalshelos on it. Vayimma'ein, he refuses. In the case of Mordechai, also ambitious, he comes from royalty. He suddenly finds him in the court of the king. He's telling Esther what to do. He informs the king about a plot. He becomes the Mishnah Lamelech, similar to Joseph. But he has his red line also. His red line is Haman. He's not bowing down to Haman. Come what may, he's not bowing down. Now what's interesting is, the second story recalls the first story. Though they spoke to him every day, right? But what is missing in the second story is one word. Vayima'ein. The Megillah writer does not say Mordechai refuses, Vayima'ein Mordechai. It doesn't say that. It says he didn't bow down. But the Megillah has not forsaken the word Vayima'ein. Because the word Vayima'ein appears in chapter 1. Vatzma'ein hamalkar vashti. The only person who actually says, I'm not doing it, because I'm not doing it, because I'm not going to degrade myself by being paraded in front of your drunken guys. I'm not doing that, okay? Whether she's fully dressed or not is irrelevant. She can be fully dressed, it's exactly the same thing. Not exactly the same thing, but it's similar. She's being paraded as an object in front of his boys, and she's no interest in that, and she says, I'm not doing it. Vatsmayin. So that doesn't end her up in a good place. I mean, we don't know what happens to Vashti. Maybe she simply is divorced, maybe she's killed, we don't know. But the fact of the matter is, it sounds like he just gets rid of her, doesn't kill her. Because he claims that it's a bad marriage, this and that, he sends around the letters. So, the point is, it doesn't work. I'm not saying that you can't fight Achashverosh. If you want to get something, you have to pretend that he is okay and that the blame lies elsewhere. Who's the wicked person who would do it? Haman. Everybody knows that Haman has no power. He's wicked, but he has no power. So that's the world in which you live. You have to pay lip service to Achashverosh, but you can't actually buy his values. And that's the way the Megillah functions. So the question is, we, have, we do have our own Torah there. In other words, Mordechai and Esther are our Rebbe's in the Megillah, and they teach the people what are Jewish values, memory being one of them, and reaching out to everybody, including inclusion is the second one, right? The Megillah does suggest, by the way, that the Jewish people, now it's not exactly the same, but it would certainly suggest that the Jewish people are beneficiaries of other non-Jewish people, who want to help us. However you understand that, so it's not a little club that's limited just to biological Jews. That is true. But these are the values the Megillah suggests. It's very unclear. When Haman says they have their own laws, it's very unclear what that actually means. One, I remember reading it and saying to myself, I wish that were the case, you know? I wish the Jews did it, because in the Megillah you don't see this. 
you see quite the opposite, that the Megillah is about assimilated Jews. Well, the question is, to what extent we believe what Haman says is actually accurate. Okay, let's stop. Okay, Shmuel, one more word, and then we're going to move on to Pesach. Yeah. And stay on this thing forever. Go ahead. I'm, I'm not sure why you seem to be missing, but it actually, that it actually could mean exactly what you've been saying, which is that Shall not make Olam, yeah. In the sense that they're committed to morality. It's possible. That is possible. I'm not saying no. I'm saying I don't know. What I am saying is that the behavior of the Jews in the book, in terms of when they win the war, is identical to the behavior of the Persians, and that Mordechai and Esther later make an attempt to change that. So I would say that it's clear to me that the Jews, to some extent, are assimilated. The Midrashim are not off there. They're right about that. The question is, to what degree? And it is clear that at least Mordechai the Jew, and then Esther, who comes under his influence, come to understand that you can't simply follow the laws. By the way, they understand something else about the laws, which is very important, and that is... Not just the word dot appears many times, but they understand something else about law, which is that the law is not always, in other words, the law has to be aligned with what is right. In other words, in the Megillah, the sense you get in the Megillah is that the day is called Purim. He casts the lot, okay, to determine when in fact it's going to happen. There is a sense in the Megillah, in that story of casting the lot, and later on, actually, when he comes home, and he informs his wife and so-called friends of the terrible thing that happened to him, and his friends become Chachamav all of a sudden, his wise men, and they say to him, to Haman, and his wife says, if before Mordechai the Jew you have begun to fall, you will certainly fall before him. And that statement is actually very interesting, and it picks up on what I think is implicit in the Megillah, that there is a sense in the Megillah that what is determined, that what is fated to happen, you can't fight the fate. Fate is something's going to happen, there's no way to stop it. It appears even in the first chapter with the wise men of Ahasuerus called Yodei Ha'itim, those that know the times. There's a sense of determinism, and I think it's related to the casting of the lot. He cast the lot, because on that day, when the Goral falls on that day, it's certainly going to happen. And Mordechai has a different point of view. Mordechai's point of view is it's not necessarily going to happen. It is very interesting, and I, this is a whole other topic, which I can't get into now, that the Megillah, I don't think, actually simply negates the other possibility. In other words, the idea that there's something to be said for fate, that it, we don't simply throw it out, I think that's true in the Megillah. It is true, actually, that on the 13th of Adar, there's going to be a war. It's true there's going to be a war against the Jews on the 13th of Adar, that part is true. What Haman doesn't seem to realize, and when Esther says you've got to cancel, Esther says cancel, cancel the 13th of Adam. Rescind the books. We can't rescind them, he says. It's part of the same thing. They can't be rescinded. It's got to be a war. But I support the Jews. So he wasn't wrong about the 13th of Adar being a day where there'll be a war. He wasn't even wrong about a war against the Jews. What he's wrong about at the end is the outcome. Because it turns out that on that day, when the Jews are fated to be destroyed in war, the Jews are victorious in war. There is a truth to what they say to Haman is true. If before Mordechai the Jew you have begun to fall, you will certainly fall before him. The word to fall was a key word of the Megillah. And the king walks back into the house. The point is, there's something to be said for determinism to an extent. But Mordechai has a different point of view. 
expressed in two key words, umi odea. Who knows, he says. We can't be sure. You don't know. Because it's possible otherwise. That's what Mordechai is saying to Esther. I'm not saying you're going to succeed. I'm saying you might succeed. And since you might succeed, you have to try. That's what he says to her. And she says, I will try. I'll break the law. Alokadat. When I perish, if kasher avadati, avadati. She's not optimistic about the outcome. Therein lies a critical, I would say, different way to see the world between the world of the Megillah, expressed by Achashverosh and all the peoples of these different places, and there's the Jewish point of view, which is, it's possible. You can change things. Of course, once again, the Megillah cites the Joseph story when Yehuda speaks to his father, send Benjamin with me. And the father says that I'll take responsibility. One of the great moments of the Joseph story. And Yaakov says to Yehuda, okay, okay. I'm going to give you Binyamin. I'll give you a gift to bring to the Viceroy. And may God have mercy. And as for me, kasher shokolti shokolti. If I am bereft or when I am bereft, I am bereft. Which the Megillah transposed into kasher avadati avadati. And I can explain why they use a different term. Explain many things, but I can't do this now. There's a taste of the Megillah. So the point is the Megillah does contain Jewish values, both in terms of practice, but even equally important in terms of looking at the world. How do you see the world? And you see the world as one in which it's possible. Because what do we know? That's what Mordechai says. The advisors of the king are they know all the times. They have all the answers. But the Jewish approach is we don't know. That's the key word of chapter 4. We don't know. Since we don't know, we make the attempt. Not because we, what I told you was on my wife's desk, Clarence Jordan, the evangelical preacher from the 40s. Faith is not believing it will turn out well. Faith is doing the right thing despite the consequences. That's exactly the point. That's the beginning of that, basically. Okay, I've got to stop. Okay, yes, Sergeant, what do you say? So you said that Esther and Mordechai are, in the end, are our rebbies. Yes, they are. It's really not even at the end because we learn the Miodea and the I have to do what's right, right regardless of the consequences right in the middle in chapter 4. But you said there were two things that primarily... That's learned. true, but in chapter 9 they actually send letters out to the Jews. Right. So the rebbies are sent directly teaching us. And the other, yes, it's true, earlier we learned from them by reading the book. But the action itself. But the, but the actual teaching of us is in chapter 9. Okay. So the, the two, and you said that there are two <laughs> primary things that we learned from them. The, the second you said was inclusion, because you have to include everyone. And what would have been the first one? If you memory. Memory. You, memory central to the book. The days of Purim are days we remember. It's exactly the, in the Chumash you remember Yitzhak Mitzrayim. In the Megillah you remember Amalek, basically. It's Amalek, and it's, I would say, perhaps, what allows Amalek to, to function. Amalek attacks us at moments of weakness. Now, there are different kinds of weakness. There's physical weakness, and there's also spiritual weakness. The Haftorah that we read this past Shabbos, Pasha Zachar, is about spiritual weakness. It's about King Saul's inability to confess. That's what it's about, actually. And that's what the Haftorah is about. It's about remembering Amalek, but it's about remembering those kinds of things that are grounds for Amalek to, to be able, or opportunities for Amalek to, to attack us. Okay, thank you. Okay, stop. Yes, okay. Let us now... So I mentioned that... Is Pesach now? Yeah, now we start to move to Pesach. Look, we could spend a lot of more time in the Megillah. What could we do? I mentioned that the Megillah, actually, in describing this world, is the world of Babel and the world of Mitzrayim put together. In between Babel and Mitzrayim, in the Chumash, in Sefer Breshis, Vayomer Hashem al-Avram, 
So Avram is commanded to go to the place that God will show him. And he goes, takes his family with him. He goes, he goes to the land of Canaan. He builds a Mizbeach in Shechem, another one between Beit El and Ai. And then the Chumash says there's a famine. And Avram goes down to Mitzrayim. Before he gets to Mitzrayim, he says to his wife, Sarai, going to a bad place. Say you're my sister, in order that it go well for me and that and I live. And we know what happens in Mitzrayim. Sarah is taken by the king. Who knows how much time she's there? And it says, Vayinaga Hashem at at the Paro, that God brought plagues upon Pharaoh. Many great plagues. And that Pharaoh then goes to Avram and says, Why do you say that she's your sister? She's your wife. Now take take her, take your possessions, and get out. So Avram is thrown out of Mitzrayim with his wife and with many possessions. That's the story of... That's the first time we actually have what we call Yitziat Mitzrayim. And that story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, of going down to Egypt in a famine, which is the way the Jews go down later to Mitzrayim because of the famine, and about being abused in one way or another by the Pharaoh, and about being thrown out of the land, and about God bringing the plagues, Right? All of that is essentially parallel to what we read later in the story of the Exodus. It goes actually beyond that. The one who points this out, among others, is the Ramban. It's found in the Medrash already. The Ramban made a big point of this. Masa Avot Simon Rabbanim. He talks about that at length. I would add to what the Ramban says, which is the plain reading of the Chumash, surely the Ramban for this. But I would add something else the Ramban does not say, which is the following. That... The experience of Abraham in the land of Egypt, which is in chapter 12, is the basis for the covenant of chapter 15. In chapter 15, when God speaks to Avraham in a critical set of verses, and God makes a covenant with Avraham called the Brit ben Habitarim, God promises Abraham to have a child, biological child, and God promises Abraham that this child will possess the land. And Avraham said to God in chapter 15, Bamar Edaki Roshena. Through what shall I know that I shall possess it? Which I take to mean not so much how do I know it's going to happen, but more through what shall I possess it? That is to say, what is the what is the price? What is the obligation that we have that my descendants will possess this holy land? To which God answers, take three animals and chop them in pieces and take two birds and don't cut them up. And let me speak to you, Abraham. And Abraham does so. And God says, You ask me, I'll tell you, Yodoa, you will certainly know. Your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs. They will be enslaved. They will be oppressed for 400 years. So the three givens are being a stranger and being enslaved and being Inui, being oppressed. Now that. Inui, by the way, in the Bible often, if not usually, is sexual. Not always, but usually it's that. Now, if we ask ourselves the question, these conditions for the covenant, these conditions to possess the land, which are very severe, to be a stranger and to be enslaved and to be abused, those conditions, okay? And then God says to Abraham, and the fourth generation shall return to the land. When you read those psukim in chapter 15 of Breshit, what is clear is that chapter 15 comes after chapter 14 and 13 and 12. And if you look back at Abraham's own personal story, in chapter 12, he went down to Egypt, and he gets out of Egypt. He leaves Egypt, 
God said to Abraham, you the sense we'll leave with a lot of possessions, which is what Abraham does in chapter 12. And then in chapter 14, comes back in 13, and in 14 you have the battle of the kings, where Abraham symbolically possesses the land of Canaan. Machitzelech says, you have fulfilled God's plan in creation. So what you have in the Abraham story is the descent into Egypt in chapter 12, and the symbolic conquest of the land in chapter 14. What you have in chapter 15 is a covenant not related directly to Avram himself only, but primarily related to his descendants. Your descendants will, in fact, live out your life. Those descendants who live out your life, they will somehow endure this kind of suffering, and they will possess the land. So if you think about it in those terms, the suffering, the Geirut, the Avdut, and the Inuit, if we accept the template that I suggest, the Geirut, the Avdut, and the Inuit, are a biblical recasting of the experience of Abraham in the land of Egypt. But the experience of Abraham in the land of Egypt doesn't actually line up with Gerut, Avdut, and Inui, of being a stranger. That does line up. But Avdut and Inui hardly line up with Abraham, who's the, who's the beneficiary of his wife being taken. The person who represents the Avdut and the Inui, obviously, is Sarah. Sarah's the one who is taken, and by the way, Without the plague, she'd still be there. And of course, the Inui is clear. The Inui is the sexual. So the point is, Sarah's experience in Egypt is recast in chapter 15 as Gerut, Avdut, and Inui. But Gerut, Avdut, and Inui are the terms the Torah uses in the beginning of the book of Exodus, in chapter 1 and 2, to describe the experience of Israel in the land of Egypt. So the point is that it's a way of linking, this Ramban didn't see this piece of it, but the, it's a way of tying together those two stories, that Abraham going down to Mitzrayim, and leaving Mitzrayim, actually, and the suffering of at least Sarah in Mitzrayim. Abraham doesn't suffer in Mitzrayim, in fact, it's the opposite. He's actually a beneficiary. One might say, one could accuse him, if one wishes to do so, of being of aiding and abetting the crime. Now, we shouldn't accuse our father Abraham of aiding and abetting the crime, and there's no need to accuse Abraham of aiding and abetting in the crime because somebody has already done it. In no uncertain terms, you are aiding and abetting the crime. And you continue to behave the same way, my good friend. Who said that to him? His wife. It's exactly what she said. Exactly what his wife says to him. Hamas is a powerful term. The wickedness is on you, she says. You've been doing this to me from the beginning. It didn't start now. You treat me like garbage. Vaikal. I am light in your, her eyes and light in your eyes, is what she's saying. And we remember when Abraham left Egypt, what does the Chumash say? Kaved. That's the problem. The problem is the overvaluing of the material resources, but the undervaluing of his wife, basically, of the human. Now, the Ramban was on to that for sure, that part of it. Chot Avram. But Sarah puts it in, in unmistakable terms, in very powerful terms. And in fact, it's true. Because in the primal sin of the Bible, which is seeing and taking, in the first two stories of the primal sin, Gan Eden and B'nai Elohim of chapter 6, so there, the Torah describes it the same way. The woman saw that it was good, and she took. The powerful sons of God, powerful ones, saw the daughters of the human, that they were good, and they took. When you come to the third story of Abraham and Sarah, Pharaoh sees and takes. But the good, the tov, accrues to Abraham. So it's true. By the way, I'm not suggesting for a moment that was Abraham's intention. 
don't get me wrong. His intention is she shouldn't be taken. That's clear. But the fact of the matter is, intention or no intention, he's a beneficiary. And as a beneficiary, he is seen by his wife, at least, and I think by the reader, as guilty. And that's how she sees it. And what she says is the fact that the woman that you were given, because Hagar was one of the slave women he's given, he's given slave women from Pharaoh, that this slave woman represents for Sarah that original situation in the land of Egypt. What she's saying to him is, you're continuing on the same path. Because if she makes fun of me, okay, that means she has no regard for me, then it's your fault. The dog looks like its master. If she has no regard for me, you have no regard for me. That's the accusation over there. Which is the part that you're saying that Ramban didn't see? Ramban didn't see. I mean, he may have seen it, but he didn't write it, okay? Ramban didn't see that the Geirut Abdut and Inui is a recasting of Sarah's experience in the land of Egypt. That he didn't see. Actually, when you hear it, it's so obvious, you know what I mean? <laughs> anyway, it's obvious once you hear it. But that's the point. My point is to begin our little study of Pesach. It's great because it, re- it recapitulates the creation story of man and woman together. Yes, it does. Right. See, I'm not going to get into that now, but there is no doubt that the Abraham and Sarah story relationship recalls m- much from the original creation of the Gan Eden and the original sin as well. But that's a separate separate thing. My point is, if the Megillah is focused in on Bavo and Mitzrayim afterwards, then what the Abraham story is about is about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. It's Pesach. If Purim is the outer story, basically, what Pesach is actually about is the story of the Exodus. Abraham's in the land, then he goes down to Mitzrayim, he has to get back to the land. It's about Abraham's ability to get back to the land. Now, before we get into the... That's Pesach or that's Purim? Pesach. Pesach is about Yitzhak Mitzrayim. But the point is, and what's very interesting, is that in the book of Breshit, we have another story of Yitziat Mitzrayim, one that is related very deeply to Yitziat Mitzrayim. I write about that in my Haggadah, if you haven't seen it. And that is, there's another story in the book. Abraham's story is chapter 12. I would say that the story of Abraham leaving Egypt, given what I just said, it doesn't just happen in a moment. I mean, you can physically leave Mitzrayim in a moment. But to spiritually leave Mitzrayim, that may take a lifetime. That takes a much longer time. Just as the Jews left Egypt in the beginning of the book of Exodus, or the middle of the book of Exodus. But they're still spiritually in Exodus, and the proof of the pudding is the golden calf. These are the gods who took us out of Egypt. So to leave Mitzrayim behind may take a lifetime. In fact, it may take even two lifetimes in the Chumash. Now, there is another story in the book of Breshit. I've spoken about this often, and I also wrote about it. And that is that the Abraham character of Abraham in Sefer Breshit has more than one foil. That is to say, there's another character, less important, obviously, Abraham's central character, but there are other characters whose behavior reflects upon Abraham, either by parallel or by contrast. And the primary one, there are two primary ones, but one of them is Lot. Abraham goes with Lot in the beginning of chapter 12. In fact, if you look at Perak Yudbet, you'll see that in the next verse it says Abraham took his wife and he took his nephew and he took the possessions and he took. But the first verse only mentions Lot. And Abraham went as God told him to go, and Lot went with him, and Abraham was 75 years old. What that means is that Lot is singled out in the beginning of the story as his potential heir. Abraham has no children, and Lot has no father, because Lot is the son of Haran who died. So Lot has no father, Abraham has no children. 
So in the beginning of the story, if you never read it before, you presume that Lot is certainly a potential heir, and given this strong relationship between brothers and nephews and the institution of levered marriage, you can certainly surmise that Lot might be the potential heir. We know it doesn't work out that way. We know that Lot gets lost, as it were. But what's interesting is the story of Lot in reference to the story of Abraham. And the story of Lot appears primarily in two places, but one main place. One is in chapter 14, when Lot is captured, and Avram saves him. And in saving Lot, he saves all the people of Sodom that were captured and all the possessions. That's chapter 14. And then in chapter 19, there's a very long chapter about the destruction of Sodom. And in that story, Lot appears very prominently. God tells Abraham in chapter 18 that God was considering destroying Sodom, and Abraham prays for Sodom in chapter 18. Maybe they're 50 righteous, or 45, 40, 30, 20, 10, whatever. And God says, I'm going to go down and check it out. And God sends two messengers, two angels, to Sodom to check it out. And in that chapter 19, they encounter Lot. Lot, actually, they're sleeping in the street, and Lot brings them into his house. That's the beginning of chapter 19. So chapter 19 is about the destruction of Sodom, it's a long chapter, and in that chapter, Lot figures very prominently. He figures in the beginning of the chapter, he takes them in. Lot is the one who was spared. He leaves with his two daughters who sleep with him, and they have each has a child, Ammon and Moab. His whole conversation of Lot and these malachim, etc., who direct him to go one place, he doesn't go. In short, there's a very long chapter about Lot. So what interested me, and it's one of the chapters in the Haggadah that I wrote, is this. When the messengers come into the house... They don't want to come in at first. The Lord invites them in, and they don't want to come. That's chapter 19. Chapter 18 begins with Abraham inviting the three people, angels, people, into his house. So 18 and 19 begin exactly the same way. The difference is that in chapter 18, these malachim are happy to enter his house, Abraham's house. He feeds them, etc. And they give him, they tell him, or tell him, or tell Sarah, actually, that she's going to have a child, etc. Abraham then accompanies them on their way, and then he prays, etc. Chapter 19 begins in a very similar fashion. There are two messengers who come into Sodom. They're sleeping in the street, and Lot sees them, and he invites them into his home. They say, no, we'd rather sleep in the street. He insists. He insists, and they come into his house, and he gives them a meal. He says, why don't you stay here and eat, and you can get up in the morning, you can whatever. And he makes for them umatzot afar vayochegel. He bakes for them matzah. Rashi says two words on that verse. Umatzot haya vayochel. So Rashi says it was Pesach. So in my Haggadah, I write about a chapter on that. First of all, it's a statement which is incomprehensible altogether. It means Pesach. What does that even mean? It means the 14th of Nisan, 15th of Nisan. What in the world could that possibly mean? Obviously, it means something. So what it means is very simply. is my beloved student, says the Chumash. When you study this story over here, read this story over here in conjunction with the story of the Exodus. The story of Lot and the story of the Exodus are bound together. Pesach Haya. I began to think, I don't know, 40 years ago about this, and I realized that those two words in Rashi are very important, because the story of Lot in chapter 19 has many, 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 many references to Pesach, to the story of the Exodus. And then the question, after you see all these parallels, the question, of course, is always, here we can go wrong. Many have. What does it signify? What is the point? 
of these parallels? That's always the key question. First, you've got to see the parallels, which are many. And next week, we will discuss these many parallels. But you have over here, actually, a very interesting thing. The story of Lot in chapter 19 takes place in Sodom. Lot has gone to Sodom. He goes to Sodom, by the way. Why does he go to Sodom? He goes to Sodom. Yes, what initiates it is that there's a dispute between Lot's shepherds and Abraham's shepherds, chapter 13. At which point Abraham says to Lot, let there not be a fight between us, he says. We're brothers. If you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you want to go to the left, I'll go to the right. So Abraham initiates the split between himself and Lot, given the fact that there's a fight between the shepherds. That itself is very strange in a way. It's not what you would assume you would do. Your first impulse is to divide, to separate. Lot picked up his eyes, and he saw the plain of the Jordan, that it was very fertile. Before God destroyed Sodom and Amorah, like the garden of God, like the land of Egypt, as one comes into Tzoa. Like the garden of God, my wife has written about that. It's very interesting. But let's not focus that on the garden of God. Let's focus on the second statement, like the land of Egypt. The Chumash already, so you shouldn't possibly miss this, the Chumash is making a very simple point. Sodom and Mitzrayim are similar. Now, this is very important, part of what Rashi says, Pesachaya. We find Lot in Sodom, and we find Abraham in Egypt. Abraham went down to Mitzrayim in the beginning of his career, where his wife was taken. I'm not saying he wanted that to happen, but it did happen. Lot goes to Sodom, and his house is surrounded by the people of Sodom who resent the fact that he has brought guests into his house. And Lot says to the people of Sodom, don't harm my guests, take my daughters. So the point is, those two stories, while not identical, are similar stories, which gets you to begin to think about all of the stories in chapter 19, the invitation into the house, the kind of meal that is served, the situation with the women, the daughters. And then that when you begin to think about this, and given the fact that Sodom and Mitzrayim are presented by the Chumash already as parallel. Then you begin to think about other things that are extremely interesting, and we'll do this next week. But one of them is this. In chapter 19, one of the key pieces of chapter 19 is that Lot brings the guests into his house. And in fact, not only does he bring the guests into his house, but the people of the town try to attack him. They try to attack Lot. They're interested now in Lot. Who are you to judge us, they say. How was Lot saved? The angels. The angels bring him back into the house. They try to knock down the door. And the people of Sodom are blinded. I'll stop with this point. When you think about the parallels to the Exodus story, first of all, I know I say the obvious, but the Bayat is the key place in the story of the Exodus. Paschal sacrifice is brought, right? Celebait avot, celebait, right? It's brought by the members of the house, we're called the Bayat. It is brought on the Bayat. The house is actually the altar. And not only is the house the altar, and the people of the house are called the Bayat, but there's a third rule about the Korban Pesach. You're not allowed to leave the Bayat. So the Bayat is the place of the sacrifice. The Bayat is the altar of the sacrifice. And the Bayat are the people that bring the sacrifice. Right? And the bayit is the protected space. What's interesting is 
the bayit, the carbon Pesach, coincides in the Chumash with the 10th plague. 10th plague, of course, is Makat Bechorot. What is the ninth plague? Darkness. Darkness. So the story of Lot actually has both plagues. The story of Lot's a combination of the two plagues. It's the plague of San Verim, which is blindness, the darkness, followed by the bayit. In short, once you begin to see this, what got me thinking about this 40 years ago was Rashi's two words, Pesach Haya. It's a perfect example, by the way, of what is often wrong with the way people study Chumash. And that is, Pesach Haya, what does that mean? What do you mean, what does it mean? It means it was Pesach, right? I could see my teacher saying that to me. Now, part of it is the fact that half the people, half are being generous, are ignoramuses, actually. But actually, what would that possibly even mean? In other words, rather than seeing this as an invitation to try to understand that the Midrashim are our great teachers and teaching us something very important about how the Chumash works, but if you don't go that route, if you take it literally, you miss the whole point, and on top of it, it makes no sense, actually. What would that possibly mean? Well, the calendar was the 15th of the month. What would that even mean? Obviously, the Midrashim, which is they always do, are inviting us to read the two stories. That's about two words. Say, we want to read the story over here, You've got to read the other story. And after you read those two stories, says the Medrash, come back to me and we'll discuss what it actually signifies. Now, it signifies something very important. So next week, we'll start with this, with Lot, which is another example of the Exodus. There are Exodus stories. There are actually our Exodus stories before the Exodus. There are three of them, actually. There are three Exodus. Before we get to the book of Exodus, there are three Exodus stories. One is Abraham in Egypt. One is Lot in Sodom. And the third, of course which the Seder, Haggadah picked up and, and ran with like crazy, very important, is Jacob in the house of Lava. That's the main one of the Seder, Arami Yovei Before we ever get to Egypt, we already left Egypt three times. That's, next week we'll continue.